0: Before I dive into my sermon this morning, I do want to kind of change gears a little bit. Uh, Next Sunday, February 19th, we're going to have a baptism service here at the church. Uh, So next Sunday morning in this service, we're going to have a series of baptisms. And I wanted to bring that up because if you have not been baptized by immersion as a believer, we would love to include you in that. And please hear me, if, if you've got a Sunday that you'd like to be baptized, we'll fill up the baptistry just for you. If you uh, have family in town and you would like to celebrate, baptism is the first step in our following Jesus. And so if you have not taken that step by being baptized in His name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, as a believer by immersion, we would love to provide an opportunity for you to do that. So, if you've not been baptized and you're interested in getting baptized next Sunday, after the service, I want you to do something. I want you to either come talk to me or go to the next steps table out in the foyer and I want you to let us know that you're ready to be baptized. We'll take your information down and I will personally reach out to you this week so that I can uh, you know, make sure that you understand what baptism is and all that good stuff and give you all the details about what you need to do to be prepared for the service next Sunday. So please let me know if you are ready to be baptized because we're going to be baptizing several people next week. Now, let's dive into what we're going to be talking about today. Take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on, and today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. If you're not sure how to locate Revelation, uh, I'm going to put a graphic up on the screen behind me that gives you some some basic instructions on how to find the book of Revelation. Uh, Now, Revelation is actually the easiest book to find in the Bible. It's the last book, Um, And so, if you go to the back of your Bible, you're going to hit Revelation. So, uh, but we're also in the Bible app. So, if you have the Bible app downloaded on your device, uh, you can pull up today's passages and sermon notes on the Bible app. And so, uh, feel free to do that and follow along with us as we go. Now, Revelation chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 12, uh, is one of the passages where we kind of see the comics... Section of the newspaper coming out. If you remember back, uh, the, the opening message to this series in Revelation, I had a newspaper up here with me. And I talked about how every newspaper has various sections in it. You've got the front page, and you've got the commentary, the opinions page, uh, and you've got the classifieds and the comics, and uh, there's all these different pages in the newspaper. But the Bible. You know, being a library of 66 books is similar to that. You know, when you read the front page of a newspaper, you read it differently than you would read the sports section or the comics because they're written differently and the purpose of what's written in them is different from section to section. Now, I told you that Revelation is kind of like the comic section of the newspaper because it is colorful. It uses tons of imagery. Uh, and, and it talks about things in a way that isn't just clean and plain and simple. It's alluding to all sorts of things that, as you read the comic section, you kind of bring different things to mind. And today, the, the, the letter to the church to Pergamum, which is the letter we're reading today, brings to mind an account from the Old Testament that, that is very colorful, it's, it's full of, of wild story and account. And when the readers of this letter would have heard it being read to them in their church, their mind would have exploded with all of these images and stories and accounts from the Old Testament. And so let's go ahead and dive in. Let's look at uh, today's passage. It's Revelation 2, starting in verse 12. It's the letter to the church in Pergamum. Now, as you're finding verse 12, let me remind you that these are part of seven letters that Jesus gave to John to give to seven churches that are found in what is modern-day Turkey. Here in a few minutes, I'll put a a map on the screen and show you some of this, but, but let's read this passage first. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 16, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a name written on it, a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, how many of you read that as you, uh, or listened to that and you said, I understood everything that was contained in those words? No, this one, this letter is particularly particularly difficult because of so many Greek and Old Testament references. So let me tell you a little bit about Pergamum. Throw that map on the screen of the the area that we're talking about. Now, Pergamum was the third city in this series of cities that uh, 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 Jesus was writing to through John. Uh, We're having some technical difficulties, so let me just walk you through this. Basically, what's happening is Pergamum is another one of these very, very large cities. Now, different from the cities that we've studied up until now, Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum does not have this massive port, but it was a junction city to one of the largest trade highways in that day and age. So, there were people constantly going in and out and through and around And it had this massive acropolis, which is the picture behind me. It had this massive, huge acropolis. Now an acropolis, acropolis is a Greek word. I've actually spelled it in the Greek form with a a Y instead of an I here. An acropolis was generally an area that was on a hill and it was surrounded by a great wall. And the Acropolis contained the most important buildings of the city. So Pergamum's Acropolis had no less than five temples, maybe more, to various gods. It also had this huge library, a library that was dedicated to the goddess Athena. And it was considered, according to historical records, it was the second largest library in the world at that time. So imagine you've maybe heard of the Library of Alexandria in Egypt, the one that burned down and, and we, we lost so many uh, great writings uh, in that fire. Um, if you're a history buff, you know what I'm talking about. If not, don't worry about it. But this, this library here in Pergamum was very famous, second largest in the world at that time. It is said to have contained 200,000 different volumes of literature from all over the known world at that time. So, Pergamum was a place of idol worship. There were many gods that were worshipped there, but it was also a place of education. It was a place where learned people would go. Now, in this Acropolis, this area with all these temples, there was a temple and altar to Zeus. So, put up that Zeus altar picture. This altar actually was transported from Pergamum uh, uh, during an archaeological dig, and it's currently located in Germany. So the German government transported it, sitting in a museum, and it's huge. I don't know if you can tell, but those things, those dots on the steps are people. And so you can imagine this almost horseshoe-shaped altar that had all of these rooms and all of these depictions along the outside that were etched in of great Greek battles that took took place around the world. In the Acropolis, there was also one of the largest Greek theaters in the world at that time. Now, entertainment was huge, to the Greek and Roman cultures in this day and age. And so Pergamum was one of the places that if you were traveling and you stopped in Pergamum, you went to the theater because it was one of the largest theaters and it's interesting if you ever go to Pergamum, they have actually excavated it and it feels like you're going straight up. It's one of the steepest of the theaters that was built by the Romans back in this day and age and it's still there to this day this theater could sit 10,000 people can you imagine a theater with 10,000 people in it pretty amazing pretty pretty large Uh, it also had uh, temples to Dionysus to Trajan Trajan was uh, a, a emperor and they had built a a temple to him in the city of Pergamum. So so I had talked about in the past series, some of the sermons about the worship of the emperors. This was a big place of emperor worship. Now, they also had what would be considered like the Mayo Clinic of the ancient world there. So put up, um, there's a picture of a a coin that I want to put up in front of you. This coin, if you'll look at the the It's one coin front and back. If you look at the right hand, the tail's side of the coin, you'll see a staff with a snake wrapped around it. Does that look familiar? It is the symbol that we use in the medical community even to this day. And Pergamum is where this image came from. This is the place that it originated from. There was a Greek god called Asclepius. That's hard to say. Asclepius, and Asclepius was the god of healing, and they had this huge hospital that had another theater where patients could sit and watch the theater. They had healing baths and and different places where you could go and sacrifice things in order to ask the gods to heal you and things like that. It's the largest known healing center in this part of the world in this day and age. And so, hospital, you know, healthcare was a big deal in Pergamum. So, lastly, there was, Pergamum was very unique. It had a temple to an Egyptian god, put up that red temple. This is the remains of the red temple. Uh, It was made to the Egyptians, Egyptian gods. It's made of brick which was very unique. Almost all buildings in Roman society were built from marble or concrete. But this one was made of brick. And it's very it's the brick that they used was a red clay. And so the building is very like red intent. It's called the red temple, even in ancient times. And it's interesting, you see what you see here in the picture is the, the front entrance to this temple. And worshipers would come in, and there was a walkway down the middle, and then the altar was at the, the very back of the room. But on the sides, it was flanked by this interesting great system. And what they've discovered in the archaeological digs of this particular temple is there was a sound chamber. And so the priest in this temple could go underneath the altar and he would speak and it would come up through this grating system underneath the walkway and it would sound like the god from that temple was speaking to the people but it would echo and reverberate and it would sound very godly that's what they believe now this later got converted into a christian monastery and now the remains are still there because it was converted to a monastery. It remained; they took care of it and they kept it around, um, and, and it's it's still there. If you were to travel to Pergamum, you could actually go and see this temple. So Pergamum was a major city; it wasn't a country backroad town. It wasn't some small insignificant place. This was a huge place of worship to idols. It was a huge place of trade. Thousands of people would have gone in and out of this town regularly on the trade routes that Pergamum, that went through Pergamum. And it was a huge city of commerce. So there's a big church here in John the Apostles' day, and Jesus writes to that church. We read that passage. Now, take your Bibles. Let's go through this passage and see what Jesus has to say to the people of Pergamum. Uh, now, I want to remind you, there are sections to the letters that uh, Jesus gave to John to these churches. So, Jeff, put that, uh, uh, the different elements of each of the letters up on the screen. So, every one of the letters has these elements that are on the screen behind me. Now, there are a couple of the letters that exclude, for example, the weaknesses. We did that, we talked about that last week, how the ch- one of the churches Jesus did not tell them, I have this against you, because they were such a healthy, thriving, God-fearing, faithful church. Now, Pergamum's not one of those churches. Christ has all of these elements in the letter to Pergamum. So, the first is the title title of Christ. It's in verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged, sword. Now, this is an Old Testament reference. In Isaiah 49, verse 2, it says this, "'He made my mouth like a sharpened sword.'" So, Jesus, through John, is referencing back to Isaiah 49 because the person spoken of in Isaiah 49 is the foretold Messiah, So, Jesus is using this title from the book of Isaiah and using it here. Now, you can go back in Revelation 1, he uses this title. All the titles that you find in the letters are pointed back to, they're used in Revelation 1 when Jesus describes himself. But Jesus is pointing back to Isaiah 49. Now, this is interesting. There, There were many different kinds of swords and daggers back in this day and age. And so, you know, if you go to my house, you'll, you'll find that I've got a couple of knives. I'm from Texas. Forgive me. But my grandfather, before he passed away, gave me a, a Bowie knife. And you've seen a Bowie knife. They're, they're pretty big knives, right? Now the word here in this passage there are a couple of different major knives or or swords that were found in in this day and age used commonly one is a makarea uh, which is like an eight inch dagger okay so think a bowie knife but the word here that jesus uses is romphea a romphea sword this is a romphea sword So, the handle that you see there, the sword was so long that you had to handle it with two hands. So, the handle always had enough room for you to grab it with two hands, and the blade itself was around five feet long. So, imagine this sword is probably as tall as I am. That's the word Jesus is using. So when he says to the people, I am the one with the sharp two-edged sword that comes out of my mouth, they're not picturing a pocket knife. They're not even picturing a pretty good like survival knife or dagger. They're picturing a sword that is used for war. This imagery was intentionally designed to show that Jesus is the one who has victory. Because he's the one with the sword. His words, his very words, are what brings him victory. Because the sword is coming out of his mouth. So, this conveys judgment. It's very strong imagery. As the people of Pergamum would have heard this title, they would have immediately thought about Jesus' power. Are you with me so far? Okay, let's move on to the next passage. From the title of Christ, he moves on to telling them how they're strong, what they're doing right. So look with me in verse 13. It says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, There's a lot of imagery here. Let me just say this. I want to point you back to last week's, last Sunday's message. Persecution, real persecution, was alive and active in these cultures back in this day and age. If you did not follow, if you followed Christ and did not worship the gods of that city, then it was very likely that your business would go under. You would lose the ability to put food on the table, there was true persecution taking place with these people, with these Christians. And so, Jesus is pointing out that they have endured this persecution, even as one of their fellow church members, Antipas, a guy named Antipas, was killed for his faith, they stayed strong, even in the midst of that. Now, there's a reference to this being the place of Satan's throne. Most scholars believe that because there were so many temples in this area, in Pergamum, that they, the Christians coined it maybe Satan's throne because there were so many places, temples of idol worship. But they could be referencing that uh, altar to Zeus. Remember, it had like a horseshoe shape. There's some indications that the altar was built in that shape because some of the Zeus worshipers believed that it was like a chair for Zeus to sit in. That the back of the altar was his backrest and the sides that flanked were his armrests. And so they, there are some indications that maybe the, the Zeus altar that was there, that was shaped like that, was maybe referred to as Satan's throne. Either way, This is a place of great idolatry, a place where the vast majority of the people worshiped idols and to not worship those idols would create great difficulty and persecution in your life. So let's move on. Verse 14 and 15. It says, but I have a few things against you. Okay, so now he's gonna jump into the weaknesses of this church. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, uh, Pastor Daniel uh, talked to us a little bit about the Nicolaitans uh, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, uh, but, but let me give you a quick reminder. The Nicolaitans were people, we assume, were people who had compromised their faith. They were still going and worshiping in the temples. They were still sacrificing to altars, and they were coming up with all of these excuses for why they thought it was Okay. I could still be a Christian and still do my idol worship at the same time. They were compromisers. And John speaks extensively in all of his letters against this practice. But look at what he says at the beginning of 14. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Okay, remember I told you in my intro that this is one of those letters that's very comic book in its design because it brings to mind pictures and imagery and stories. Are you familiar with the account of Balaam from the Old Testament? If you went back into Numbers chapter 22, you would find an account of the Israelites traveling. They're in their wanderings, trying to get to the promised land. And they come to a certain area, and the king of that area, a guy named Balak was pretty afraid of the power of the Israelites and their God. And so he goes to a prophet named Balaam. And he says, Balaam, I want you to come to my city and I want you to do some work for me. And so Balaam goes and prays. And in his prayer, the Lord says, don't go with them because they're against my people. And so Balaam like, goes back and says, no, I can't go with you. God doesn't want me to. And Balak just keeps howling him about it. Come on, come on, I'll make it worth your while. Come on. I don't want you to do anything. Just come and see what I'm seeing. You don't have to say anything or do anything. Just come by. And finally, after everything's said and done, Balaam yields and says, Okay, I'll go. And this is the famous account. He's traveling along on his donkey. Are you with me? You know where I'm going with this? He's traveling along on his donkey and he went through some kind of tunnel where he was surrounded on both sides and there was very little room to navigate and he's traveling along going through this tunnel and the donkey stops. Get up, come on donkey, go, go, go. You'll Samity Sam maybe starting to curse a little bit. And the donkey won't move. And the Bible tells us the reason the donkey won't move is because God had opened the eyes of the donkey to see that the angel of the Lord was standing in the tunnel with a sword ready to take Balaam down and the donkey said I got nothing to do with that I'm not going any further and so finally Balaam's hitting this donkey so much the donkey says okay I'll go but I'm going to go around the angel and as he does he gets so close to the side of the 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 tunnel that they're in that he he pins Balaam's leg to the side and Balaam pushes him and he gets all upset and then the Lord opens his eyes and he sees the angel the donkey talks to him. And you're like, How is it? Uh, don't worry about that. We're not going that far into this story because I got to get to the end. <laughs> so Balaam ends up going to King Balak. And Balak pays him to, to stand on a hill that overlooks the camp of the Israelites. And he pays him to curse, to pass curses down on the Israelites. And Balaam opens his mouth and can't help but pronounce blessings on the Israelites because God speaks through him in the moment. And Balaam's like, stop, 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 you're doing the opposite. You're supposed to curse them, not bless them. And so Balaam tries again and again and again. And he blesses them over and over and over because God will not allow him to curse them. But there's something that interesting happens here. No matter what Balaam and Balak do, they cannot get a cursing onto the Israelite people. And there's an indication in Numbers 31. In Numbers 31, verse 16, there's an indication that tells us that Balaam couldn't figure out what to do, and so he's getting ready to leave, and apparently Balak came to him and said, okay, you can't curse them because God won't allow you to. What am I supposed to do? And Balaam says, well, if you tempt them to disobey their God, that'll put their God against them. And so Balak takes Balaam's advice and he sends the women of his people to go and tempt the men to live in adultery and to worship their idols. And God's hand in in. Towards the end of the book of Numbers, comes against the people of Israel because they turn their back on God and his ways and start embracing the temptations that were put in front of them on the suggestion of Balaam. Okay, so I've given you the Cliff Notes version of all of that. Now imagine if you were a listener to this account. So listen again, now keeping that account from the Old Testament in your mind. Listen where these people's minds would have gone. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Immediately their mind would have said, oh, Balaam, oh, Balaam. Oh, we're in trouble. God himself is saying that we're like those that were tempted by Balaam, that we've fallen into the same trap. Oh, man, we're in trouble because we really look down on what happened in that account in Numbers. And so they would have heard this, this amazing account of how God saved the people of Israel and how the people still turned their backs on him and followed after the women of this other kingdom and followed their idols and their immoral ways and how God had to punish them. You know, God had to punish them by bringing a plague on them. And the plague was quelched. The the plague was stopped because of the zealousness of a guy named Phinehas, who was the grandson of the priest Aaron. He stopped the plague But he did so by some pretty extreme measures. Go read Numbers 22 and beyond. You'll you'll see what happens there. But the listeners of this account, their minds would have gone all over the place as they heard this story. So, they would have heard that Jesus is condemning them for compromising to the ways of the culture. That's the condemnation that Jesus is saying. Your weakness is that you are allowing yourselves to be conformed to the ways of the culture. And that brings me to today's big idea. So if you're a note taker, get your pen ready. I want you to take this this simple statement home and I want you to think about it and apply it to your life, how it applies to you. And today's big idea is this. Cultural conformity cripples our connection to Christ. When we conform to the ungodly ways of the culture around us, it cripples our connection to our Savior. That's what was happening in the church in Pergamum. They were conforming, they were allowing themselves to be conformed to the ways of the world around them because it was easy It was easy to do that. Romans chapter 12 says, do not be conformed to the ways of the world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's easy to conform. If I was to hold a, a glass in front of you and I poured water into the glass, the water would conform to the shape of the glass, correct? Because it's easy. It's natural to want to do that. But as a follower of Jesus, we're not called to conform to the shape of the world. We're called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But guess what, guys? Transformed by renewing our mind is hard work, isn't it? It doesn't naturally come to us. It doesn't happen unless we intentionally seek God doing that in our lives. And apparently the church in Pergamum had allowed themselves to start conforming to the ways of the world. Let me give you some examples. How do we conform? Well, let's take Pergamum. Idol worship. When's the last time you went to an idol temple? What? No one's gone to the the local temple to Zeus? Oh wait, there's not one in Phoenix. That's right. Because idolatry here in America looks different, doesn't it? It's not going down to the temple and sacrificing a bull. Idolatry is when we worship anything other than God. Don't raise your hand, but how many times have you thought or caught yourself worshiping yourself a little bit? I catch myself constantly wanting to take care of my needs at the expense of following God. We are a selfish culture, aren't we? I mean, we are one of the few cultures on this planet that is more concerned with our individual uniqueness and rights than we are about the good of the community, which is a shame. So idolatry in America takes a different form. Selfishness is one of them. Money, comfort, materialism. How many people do you know, or you yourself maybe were or struggle with it today, how many people do we know that the almighty dollar is the thing they strive for? All of their decisions revolve around how to make more money and make their lives and their future more comfortable. Or here's the hard part that may step on some toes, making their kid's life more comfortable. We're willing to compromise our faith if it means that we can set up the future for our children or make our own lives more comfortable. That's idolatry, right? It's hard to face, but it is the truth. You know, some sin that we're struggling with that we're not willing to repent of, that can be an idol. Maybe it's sexual sin like mentioned here in Pergamum. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's a a substance abuse issue. I don't know what it is, but maybe there's a sin in your life that you've never truly repented of and and put roadblocks in the way of accessing it so that you can never turn back to that sin again. That's an idol. You know, sometimes we place our relationships as being more important than our walk with God. Well, I can't say this truth and I can't do this thing in my faith because I don't want to jeopardize this relationship you've made that relationship into an idol because you're valuing it more than obeying Christ in your life. One that's not very popular but should be said, don't shoot me, but patriotism gone too far. When you're willing to not live out the fruit of the Spirit because someone says something or does something that you think is unpatriotic, And so, you stop loving them and you start treating them like trash and you say horrible things against them. The Bible's clear, guys, even our enemies we're supposed to be loving. When you are not willing to obey God's Word because of your love for country, you've gone too far with your love for country. Notice patriotism is not on the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Patriotism is good, please don't misunderstand me, hear me clearly, let me say it louder, patriotism is good as long as it doesn't call you to compromise your commands that Christ has given you. Are we clear? Because I don't want any, I don't want to hear when I go out here this afternoon or later this week, well, Chad said, I'm not supposed to love my country. No, no, no. That's not what I said. I said, when your love for anything, including your country, calls you or drives you to disobey God's word, that is an idol in your life. We have lots of idols. Every one of us in this room, including myself, has something that tempts us all the time to not follow Jesus, not obey him. That's exactly what Pergamum's dealing with. There are things in their culture that have pushed them from following Jesus the way they're supposed to follow Jesus. But it doesn't end there. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. Therefore, repent. Let's stop there for a second. Okay, you see the idol in your life? Okay, repent of that idol worship. There, it's not as if we live in hopelessness. Jesus gives us a way out of our sin. He gives us a way to escape our sin. He finds a way. He has a way to even redeem the sinful ways that we get caught up in. And we all do it. Don't don't, I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers or or trying to, to say that single you out. We are all guilty of sin. Jesus provides redemption from it. He can change Your life, no matter what junk you've done, no matter what sin you're guilty of, no matter how horrible of a person you think you are, Jesus loves you and wants to rescue you from all of that. You can never be too far gone. You are not so bad that Jesus doesn't love you and doesn't want to rescue you from that sin. Please hear me. And if you're here today, And you've never placed your belief in Jesus. Jesus loves you like that. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you've hurt. It doesn't matter how far extreme your sin or your evil has gone. Jesus still loves you and he wants to take your life and transform it in his name, in his image and redeem your life. And all he asks is that you believe in him and dedicate your life to him. And you can have that today. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, and you've got questions or you want to know more, you want to know what this redemption looks like, I want you to come see me out in the foyer or go by the next steps table, please. Come talk to somebody today. We would love to talk to you about what Jesus wants to do in your life. So, verse 16. Therefore, repent. Let's keep going. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's going back to that imagery of that battle sword that is coming out of his mouth. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Catch this part. To the one who conquers, who repents of their sin, turns away from the idol worship, all of those things. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. Go back to your Old Testament. Again, Jesus is pointing back to the Old Testament again through John. And he's pointing back to the food that God provided the people of Israel when they were wandering in the desert and there was no food to be found. God fed them. God will provide for you. I will give you some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, there's a lot of speculation. I can't explain what the stone is. There are a dozen different things that it could mean. White stones were used as entries into the theater. They were used as tokens uh, within some of the trade guilds. White stones were very common uh, as, as use for access or if you belonged to a group. And that's basically what Jesus is saying here. If you'll believe in me, you'll turn from your ways and repent and follow me I will write a white, I'll I'll take a white stone and I'll write a new name that's unique to you that you will use and you will belong to me. I will redeem every part of your life. That's what Jesus has for us. So here's the question in closing. How are you compromising or conforming to the world? rather than transforming through your faith. Guys, we all have something. Please hear me. If you're sitting there going, oh, well, I don't have anything, I'm a good Christian. Um, you may need to ask the Holy Spirit to do a really hard look in your life because we all, every single one of us, we all have things that make us struggle with our faith, that compromise our faith, that try to pull us away from God. So what is that for you? And the next question is, what steps do you need to take in order to stop being conformed and instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the way Romans 12 says? What is it in your life that needs to be called out? And let me encourage you, again, we all have things. If you've got something and you just feel defeated by it, you've never had victory over it, you've always struggled with it, please, there is hope. And maybe that hope is you taking that issue that you're struggling with and maybe you're really embarrassed about and you've never said a word to anyone about it. Maybe that next step is for you to go to someone you trust. Maybe it's one of our pastors or deacons or elders or or, or ministry leaders or, or a faithful, godly person that you know. Maybe it's time that you take that issue And you go ask for some help and some prayer with it. Please hear me, Jesus wants to rescue you and give you victory over that sin, that issue, but maybe it's going to take some extreme circumstances to gain victory. There's always hope, there's always redemption, but it may mean that you have to take some hard steps to seek that hope and redemption. If you want to know more and you're too ashamed or you're embarrassed or you're like, I can't say anything to the pastor in front of everybody, that that would, no. Guys, reach out this week. Send me an email. I would love, please, please hear me. I would love to walk with you, counsel you, partner you with someone that can help you with that struggle. Don't do this alone. You have a family right here. Help us help you in the name of Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you so much. We recognize that we so desperately need you. We need you so much, Lord. We pray that we will learn something from the letter that you wrote to the church in Pergamum. Lord, help us to recognize that we need to follow you. Help us to recognize that we need to turn away from whatever idolatry we struggle with in our life. We need to turn away from that and embrace your hope instead, your redemption. Lord, give us the courage to do that. Give us the strength to do that. That we could live our lives for you in repentance. That you could give us that white stone, that hidden manna. Lord, help us to be the followers of Jesus that you call us to be. We thank you, Lord. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.